Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Adam Venable, and as at least a few of you know, I'm the campus pastor at UAB. With RUF, our mission is to take the gospel message onto the UAB campus and to see the name of the Lord Jesus Christ glorified there. Um, among 18 to 22-year-olds, so I have them for just a few years, and that is our aim and goal um, and mission there. I want to thank you on behalf of UAB students for your work with us and your prayer and support of our ministry there. We're very thankful for you and uh, really thank God, our Heavenly Father, for you and rejoice that it's not just us headed to the UAB campus, but that we really do go together in that work to influence our city and the states of Alabama and even the whole world. We have students who are at UAB for a year or two, then head back to Brazil or China or wherever it is that they are from. So please ask me questions about our ministry afterwards. I wasn't going to spend too much time on that this morning, um, but just wanted to introduce myself and to thank you for that. Um, I wanted to start out by reminding us of a famous archaeological find that happened in 1956. Much like Indiana Jones, in 1956, archaeologists were buried in the sand about five miles northwest of Jerusalem, uh, the modern city of Jerusalem. And what they discovered was groundbreaking both for their careers as archaeologists and just for the study of archaeology, especially in the Middle East. They discovered the ancient city of Gibeon uh, to be the modern city of El-Jib. That's what it's called now, El-Jib. -Jib. And the most impressive part of the find was this giant pool about 50 feet deep and about 35 feet wide that would have been used by the Gibeonites, who are not the main character of the passage we're looking at this morning, but certainly one of the main characters. It was the Gibeonites that lived in this ancient city that was discovered just in 1956. Now, why look to old Things like that for wisdom. And I think we instinctively know the answer to that question in some ways. You know, this is why the paleo diet was all the rave not too long ago. Maybe we can go back in time before all the accretions and all the things that have collected onto our modern diets and just go back. We can find something pure and good. And that instinct is really a good instinct, especially when we find God's word to be, well, rather old, right? It becomes new in the Holy Spirit. But this passage that we're looking at this morning, this took place 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth. And this morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21, 1,000 years before our Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin really in the middle of the Israelites being overwhelmed by a famine. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Well, that's exactly where we find Israel. Overwhelmed by this famine that has lasted not for one or two, but for three years, it says, in Second Samuel 21, that this famine has been going on for three years. And so in a culture that depended much more than ours does on rain and crops grown nearby, this would have been devastating for Israel and devastating for King David. And so if you would like, you can look with me. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. That would be a little dangerous. I'm going to read 
down to verse 9 of chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, and then I'm going to skip and just read one more verse, 1 through 9, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 14. Let me invite you to listen in as I read God's word this morning. This is what it says. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. And although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us. And Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us, that is Saul, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons given to us be given to us so that we may hang them. Before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord and the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahathalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Skipping down to verse 14. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning for wisdom because we have none in ourselves. We look to you for life because really we have none in ourselves. We look to you for salvation, for we cannot save ourselves. Uh, would you do this in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus? Amen. So Israel has been brought to its knees by this three year famine. And what I want to look at briefly this morning are four things that we're to do when you feel overwhelmed. You ever feel overwhelmed? Not enough money, not enough friends. Um, we, we could go on and on. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? And four things seek, accept, trust, and renew. Seek, accept, trust, and renew. 
The first thing we're to do when we feel overwhelmed is to seek the face of the Lord. And this is, of course, what King David does. You can imagine what it must have been like to have been the leader of this country that had been brought to its knees because of what we would call a natural disaster. But what they thought of as something very much connected to their relationship with God, it says in verse one, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And that's the first thing God words, God, God's word wants us to see is that when we do feel in the midst of hardship that is overwhelming, it's to seek the face of the Lord. And God wants to tell us this because he knows that we're not naturally disposed to do that. When we feel overwhelmed, we naturally want to just figure out how we can fix the situation. God tends to be the last thing that we want to worry about when we're in debt and can't pay the mortgage or when uh, you know, so-and-so has said something to really make us angry and it's hurt this relationship. When my children are out of control and I don't know what to do with them. Naturally, the last thing we want to do is seek the face of the Lord. Um, I minister at UAB, and so most of our students tend to feel overwhelmed about their GPA. They feel overwhelmed about losing their scholarship, about uh, somebody breaking up with them, maybe their fiancé breaking up with them. They tend to feel overwhelmed by their parents, either finding out about uh, that person that they're going out with, (laughs) Or uh, their parents finding out what their grade in chemistry was last semester. That's what my students at UAB feel overwhelmed about. And of course, we naturally don't want to take that to the Lord. But David, that is his, that's his gut instinct, finally, after three years. It's very possible that it took David three years to finally wake up and think, I can't do anything about this. Our country's fallen apart. I don't know what to do. And as a last resort, I'm going to seek the face of the Lord. And of course, that doesn't mean that God has a body or an actual face that David was trying to find. Um, Sometimes I travel quite a bit for RUF for training, and I can't wait to see the face of my daughter or my son or my wife when I get back from a business trip. That's not exactly what David did here. He wasn't looking to actually see God. But the scripture puts it that way because um, it's trying to say David sought God in the most intimate, the most connected way possible. He wanted to find the real essence of who God was. And he wanted to do that because he knew God to be a God of grace. Sometimes in the church, there can be a fatal mistake that because you're a Christian, everything is going to be okay, Or because your life is a wreck, that must mean you're not a Christian. Or at least you better fix your life and get it back together. And then you can go seek the face of the Lord. When you get your GPA backed up where it should be, when your son or your daughter finally starts behaving the way that you'd like them to, well, then you can start to pray and really seek God's face again. But the scripture is saying, no, 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 no. In the midst of the famine, seek the face of the Lord. No one knew this better than Jesus, right? I mean, he went without food for 40 days in the wilderness. No one, knows, no one knows what it's like to feel hungry, to feel like you are going to die because you're so hungry. No one knows what's that, what's, what, what, excuse me, what that is like more than the Lord Jesus Christ.
No one experienced famine more than Jesus. He knows what it's like. And the scripture is saying, take it to the Lord. He knows. Okay, so the first thing is to seek. The second thing, accept. Accept. And y'all hang with me for just a few minutes on this point. It gets, it's a little teachy and complicated because this passage is a little weird, isn't it? There's people being hung on the mountain. Who are the Gibeonites? This story kind of fits a little um, strange in the middle of all the sermons you've probably heard here at the church. Um, because Saul's been dead since the beginning of the book. And now the author wants to bring Saul back up. And so what has happened here? Picking up again in, in verse 1, David seeks the face of the Lord. And the Lord says, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, here's the explanation, because this is difficult for us to understand. The author of Second Samuel would have empathized because he thought it would have been hard enough for the Jews to understand 3000 years ago that he actually puts an explanation in the middle of the passage. Right. He says in the middle of verse two. Now, look. In case you don't know who the Gibeonites are, in case you have no clue, Israel, I want, to, I want to remind you. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal and put the people of Israel in Judah. Don't turn to Joshua chapter 9, but if you want to read all about this, you can read Joshua chapter 9 later. In that chapter, I'll be very brief. Israel comes into the promised land. They're supposed to uh, get rid of all the um, non-Israelites in the land. And most of the other tribes who are already living in Canaan kind of bow up to Israel. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're coming to take your land. You and whose army? We will take you down and destroy you. That's how most of the other armies respond to Israel coming into Canaan, but not the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites instead... Hear of this God, who's the God of Israel, who just, who's destroying Egypt and destroying all these other armies. And the Gibeonites humble themselves and they think we're going to get wiped out. And I think this God of Israel, I think he might be legit and we're going to be in trouble. And so what they do is they go to Israel and they say, look, we don't actually live here. We've traveled from this far country and we've come into the promised land and we're looking for shelter because we heard you guys were big and bad and that your God was big and bad. And we don't want anything to do with rebelling against you. Please don't kill us. Uh, we want to serve you. Can we covenant with you? That's what we'd like to do. Did I mention that we're not from here? We don't live here. We're from another country. So all these tribes that you're trying to wipe out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not us. And so Israel says, okay, um, I mean, God did command us only to wipe out the tribes here in the land. You're not from there. And you're, doing it, you're coming very humbly. You want to submit yourself. We'll covenant with you. Except that afternoon, it says in Joshua 9, Israel realizes what's happened. That these Gibeonites are, in fact, from like five miles north of Jerusalem. It was like Hoover and downtown Birmingham. They're neighbors. And Israel says, what are we going to do? You have lied to us. You're one of the tribes that God commanded us to wipe out. I don't know what we should do. And so Israel, because they had pledged in the name of the God of Israel, says, look, it's true. It's within our rights because you lied to us. 
to wipe you out anyway. That's what's in our right to do. However, because of the name of the God of Israel and because he's a God of mercy and grace and honor and truth, and we have already sworn to you to let you live, we're going to let you live. However, you will be our slaves and you will always be second class citizens here in Israel. And however much you assimilate, however much you pledge your faith to the God of Israel, you will never be one of us. Fast forward to this passage. Saul has broken this promise. Saul had come before David, it says, out of his zeal for Israel, because he wanted Israel to be a pure place with no impurities. Nothing second class about this nation, Saul thought. And so he sought to kill them all. And the Lord God of Israel found out about it. And he was not happy. Now, this would have been hard for David to accept, but he accepted it. And so what God is saying in this passage is that, look, this famine, oh, Israel, that you've now experienced for three years, it's all because you have broken your promise to the Gibeonites. I will not have it. I'm a God who keeps his promises. You will be a people who keeps their promises. Let's start some famine around here. Now, I want to make a big, big qualifier for you and I. Not all the suffering we go through has anything to do with sins that you've committed. Um, That sin you committed yesterday against your friend or your spouse or your parents. uh, Today, if you uh, get sick because of something you ate at lunch. Jesus has very strong words for people who draw the conclusion that every hard thing you're going through in your life, well, that's because of some sin you committed. Jesus has very, very strong words for people who draw that conclusion. That's not what I'm saying. And it's not what this passage is saying. But what God's word does say is that some suffering is to discipline us for sins that we've committed. You can think of times that you haven't loved the truth the way that you should have and you've told a lie and something bad happened and God did that because he loves you not because he wants to judge you but we, there's things you've experienced in your life sin hurts y'all. I mean sin is miserable right sin is miserable and that's what Israel has experienced and God does want to remind us of that but all suffering is to teach us what Whether it's uh, the cancer that you have or whether it's uh, losing your job, Jesus says it is not because of some particular sin you committed necessarily. That's a terrible thing to say and teach. However, it's always to draw you near to my son, the Lord Jesus. Always. No suffering for Christians is ever because of God's judgment. Some of it's for discipline for sin. All of it is for teaching. None of it. Is because God is judging you. It's not because he's angry at you because you're his child. Of course, only Christians have this hope. Only Christians can look to Jesus Christ and know that whatever famine I'm experiencing, it is not because God hates me. It's because he loves me and wants to teach me something. And so this morning, this is the question I think the passage wants us to ask about ourselves. What promises have you broken lately? The Gibeonites were in trouble because they had, or sorry, Israel was in trouble because they had broken their promises to the Gibeonites. And it was easier for it was it was easy for Israel to break the promise to the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites didn't have any power. 
They were second-class citizens. Um, who in your life is rather powerless, and if you break your promise to them, no one's ever going to notice. No one's ever going to notice if you, if, if you don't keep that promise to them, because that person doesn't have any power. You have all the power in that relationship. God is asking us to accept his word about us and to learn in the midst of our suffering. What promises have we failed to keep? And it's hard to admit that. Um, It's hard to humble yourself. I cannot talk this morning, y'all. It's hard to humble yourself and accept God's word. That whatever suffer I'm going through... Some of it might be because of some sin I committed, but all of it is definitely because God wants to teach me to humble myself and to ask myself, where have I broken my promises? And I want you to think especially about children in your midst. If you break a promise to a child, what power do they have to really do anything about it? I mean, they can whine and complain, I guess, but how have we broken promises and not kept uh, our, our covenant vows to children to bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. How have we ignored children? How have we communicated to children? You know, when you're older, then you can have a relationship with God. But until then, good luck. Anytime we do this, we break our vows, which we take when we join any church. You know, any good church should make you take a vow, right? To believe in Jesus and to repent of your sin And to love those in your midst. And if you're in a Presbyterian church, if you're a member of the congregation, you even take a vow that as a congregation, you will bring up children in the fear and admission of the Lord to love Jesus. Right. We take that vow. Okay, I spent way too much time on that point. Seek the face of the Lord, accept his word about it. Finally, trust Or I shouldn't say finally. That's the cardinal sin of preaching. You never say finally if it's not finally. I got two points left. Trust in the sacrifice God provides. That's what this strange story about these men being hung up on the wall is meant to communicate to us. It says in verse 6, the Gibeonites tell Israel, look, you can't atone for this sin by being nicer to us. You can't create some social program that's going to empower us, that's going to atone for what you've done. You can't pray your way out of this. You can't fast your way out of this. You can't promise to um, you know, give up these vices for the next year, and then God will be okay with you. The only way you're going to get out of this, to get out of this famine, it says in verse 6, Let seven of his sons, that is Saul's sons, be given to us. So that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Three or four verses of names and mothers of the names. And it's not all the same mother because Saul had more than one wife and concubines. Don't ever complicate that. There's seven sons. These seven sons are going to have to suffer for the sin of Israel. That's the point. And they're they're going to hang them up on this wall, skipping down to verse 9, before the Lord, and seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
There's a couple of details here that are very important to understanding the meaning of what God's word is saying here. And there's a few words, atonement, Passover and barley harvest, atonement, Passover and barley harvest. If you look back in verse. Three, how shall I make atonement? When you hear the word atonement in the Bible, New Testament or Old Testament, all these alarms should start going off. This is really important. Atonement. The process by which God and man are brought back to one. God and man become separated because of sin, but because of God's grace and mercy, he brings God and man back together through atonement. And that's what these seven sons hung up on this wall were meant to represent atonement, a peacemaking between God and man. And it's being done, it says, at the barley harvest. Anybody remember what's what's happening during the barley harvest? It's happening around the month of April, which is also the same time as the Jewish festival of the Passover. Yom Kippur. The biggest festival in all of the Old Testament meant to remember what? That time when the angel of death passed over the children of Israel because of the blood that was put on the door. And so it's not an accident that these seven sons are being hung up on this wall to atone for the sin of Israel, to atone for their promise breaking at the exact same time that they're going to be celebrating Passover. To celebrate the atonement of the lamb, how Israel was rescued out of slavery and brought into the promised land. And it was meant to coincide with this barley harvest as a celebration. The people of God loved to eat and drink and feast together to celebrate the atonement that the Lord had provided. Of course, it was this exact festival that was in jeopardy of even being celebrated. I mean, um, I just I can't think of a country now fairly large uh, Anyway, it was a country in Africa. This country is so bankrupt, their big kind of Fourth of July celebrations coming up, this country in Africa, they're broke. And so there is not going to be any party. And the president of the country has basically said, look, I know the Fourth of July is coming up. We don't have any money. You want fireworks? Go buy them yourself. It's the same danger that Israel is in here. This huge famine has come over the land. There's not going to be a barley harvest. There's not going to be any festival. We have, we've had a famine for three years. But it's these sons of Saul meant to represent Jesus Christ himself who would come 1,000 years later to represent this atoning sacrifice. Trust in the sacrifice that God provides. Now, do you believe this? Do y'all believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the only medicine for the sickness of feeling overwhelmed? Um, I'm a big fan of Dave Ramsey. My mother teaches the Dave Ramsey class at her church. Um, I've been in a lot of like debt problems kind of before marriage and God worked in my life and um, sanctified me in that area a lot. But. Your debt problems, your problems with money, and especially feeling overwhelmed about them to the point where, like, you're on your third gallon of chocolate ice cream because you just feel so overwhelmed about paying that bill. That overwhelmed, I think I'm going to die feeling is not going to go away by you taking another Dave Ramsey class. Not going to happen. 
That was the fatal mistake that Israel could have fallen into. God says, look, I know you're overwhelmed. You can't work your way out of this. You can't discipline your way out of it. It's not about you. I'm going to provide the sacrifice for you. And it's going to be for everybody to see. And it's going to be bloody. And it's going to be nasty. But therein is your life. And it's there that I want to remind you, look, I love you. And I forgive you. Trust in my sacrifice. You may be in hardship for a while. That's the, the mystery of following Jesus Christ is that it's we only experience the glory of the resurrection as we gather around the cross. It's only as we enter into Jesus who suffered for our sins. What does it say about him? They, they stripped him of his purple cloak and they put a crown of thorns on him. And they were spitting on him. And they were striking his head with a reed. And it says that after they had humiliated him, they led him away to crucify him. And the more and more we become like Christ, the more we enter into the sufferings of Jesus. But his promise is that as we look to his sacrifice, God assures us, I love you. I may call you to go into the desert for 40 days without food. And it's going to hurt And it's going to be hard. But it's in the suffering of Christ that you experience in your own life that I'll give you glory. The glory that Israel knew about from this great party that they were going to have called this barley feast. This party that was going to remind them, I know the sacrifice is bloody, but the party will be great. And I know it's hard to admit that you're a sinner and to confess your sins and to to accept God's word about it. But the party will be great. My final point. um, We seek the face of the Lord. We accept his God's. We accept God's word about it. We trust in the sacrifice that he provides. Finally, we renew our vows. Any of y'all ever taken vows? About two years after... Uh, I got married. Our pastor who did our premarital counseling on our wedding, we got a letter from him. And you ever got a letter from your pastor? Not the kind of form letters that look like they sent to everyone, but a personal letter. You kind of think, oh, man, what did he see me doing or what kind of trouble am I in? um, Is he going to recommend that we need to go get like marital counseling and A letter from our pastor. What is this all about? And he had included the sermon text that he had preached for our wedding in this letter. And then also the vows that we took. Um, It's hard for me to tell a story without tearing up about it. And this pastor had bothered to send us the letter at our anniversary. It's like 500 people in this church. Uh, There's no way he's doing that for everybody. It's not explicit in this passage, but I think the, 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 the automatic response of Israel would have had to have been to renew their vows to the Gibeonites. Gibeonites, I know you're kind of second class citizens around here and we blew it with you. Because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, for the Gibeonites, because of the sacrifice of the atonement and these seven sons have been hung up. 
We know that God keeps his promises to people who don't deserve it. God loves to be gracious to people who don't deserve it. Um, This, of course, is the exact opposite of what human nature tends to be like, right? Um, Think about marriage for a moment. And if you're anything like me, well, I'm the righteous person and they're unrighteous or I'm, you know, I'm clean and they're unclean or I'm first class and they're second class. And, yeah, I know I broke some promises, but they deserved it. Um, We tend to think of marriage more like a business contract, right? Well, look, you've got your end of the bargain and I've got my end of the bargain. And, well, I'll make sure and keep up my end of the bargain if you keep up your end of the bargain. And if you don't, well, null and void, right? And that's what a contract is like. And the difference between that and what's happening here is a word called covenant. A covenant where God enters in to be gracious and kind to people who don't deserve it. People who haven't done what they were supposed to do. And the glory of the covenant is that God keeps his promise anyway. And that God loves anyway. And that God forgives anyway. What vows might we renew this morning? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, I don't think we're doing that this morning, but every time we take the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to renew your vow to your king who died for you. Lord Jesus, I know I haven't kept up my end of the bargain. And that's why I'm so thankful for your sacrifice for my sins. And we don't renew our vows because we're optimists. We don't renew our vows because we think, you know what, I've screwed up a lot. This time I'm going to get it. But we renew our vows because we know that he died for us and that he's promised to go before us. That because Jesus rose from the dead, he is renewing all of creation and he's going to start with little old me and you. And I expect to be able to to love more and more and be less and less selfish because Jesus rose from the dead. Seek the face of the Lord, accept his word about it, trust in his sacrifice, renew our vows. A passage like this often leaves me feeling a little overwhelmed at what God requires of me. And that's a good place to be, to be humbled about God's requirements for us. How can I keep it? How can I do it? And so... As we close today, I would just invite you to pray with me. Let's ask God to help us. One pastor I know says that asking for help from God is very, very powerful. There is power in asking God for help. And so as we close today, I would just invite you to pray with me and let's ask God for help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you not... In our own righteousness, but only in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who suffered for us and died for us. Heavenly Father, we do come up short in so many ways. Loving you, we, we do feel overwhelmed. We feel overwhelmed by money, uh, by friendships, uh, over, overwhelmed by loneliness. Um, when will it end? Um, when will the great harvest come in? And so we look to you for help because we need it. Would you help us to seek your face and to trust in your sacrifice um, and to even renew our vows, Lord? Um, Help us to put one foot in front of the other 
and to, um, to remember the least of those amongst us. Uh, help us to keep our promises to those who have no power to fight back if we don't. Um, help us to do that, that your name and the name of the covenant-keeping God might be magnified in Maine Node, in Birmingham, and in Alabama, and even in the whole world. Amen.